0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. This week, we learn about an unexpected immigrant to central Appalachia, the armadillo.
1: I think of armadillos as Florida, South Georgia, Texas, places further to the south. So when I first heard of armadillos in Southwest Virginia, I was quite shocked and surprised.
0: We also take a ride on the Cass Scenic Railroad and follow reporter Randy Yoe as he explores some one-of-a-kind getaways in West Virginia.
2: Uh, The company houses are great. They're the original structures. Of course, they've been fitted with modern amenities. It's a nice uh, experience to take a look back at the history of chaos, but yet be comfortable.
0: And just in time for the pawpaw harvest, we revisit one of our 2020 stories about this wild food delicacy. It's one of these foods where some people will never get a chance to taste it. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. A lot of times when we talk about populations of animals, it's in the context of disappearance. A species becomes endangered, or sometimes even extinct. But we're starting today's show with a conversation about an animal that's emerging in Appalachia. The armadillo. That's right, the armored mammal more associated with the Deep South and Texas. Armadillos have been moving north for decades. In the last couple of years, they've been spotted here in the mountains of western Virginia. Seth Thompson is a biologist with the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources, and he was the officer who took the first calls of armadillos here. I asked him how he reacted when he got that first call.
1: I think of armadillos as Florida, South Georgia, Texas, places further to the South. So when I first heard of armadillos in Southwest Virginia, I was quite shocked and surprised. We here in Virginia, we have a what's called the Virginia wildlife conflict helpline. And that's basically like a, a number that we encourage people to call if they are experiencing a conflict or a problem with wildlife. And I, I one day I got an email that the, the title of the email was Armadillo in Buchanan County, Virginia. <laughs> And there was a there was a, a picture of the animal and some of the damage that it had done to it to this lady's yard. And so I was still a little skeptical because we get pictures that uh, purport to show a, a mountain lion in Southwest Virginia, but then there's sagebrush and ponderosa pine trees in the background of the picture. But the more I dug and the more I read the the email chain and and information, it it seemed legit. I ended up following up and calling the lady who was reporting this. And followed up, and sure enough, was able to verify in the field that, yes, indeed, this was an armadillo.
0: So what happened next?
1: So I I was able to verify this particular animal in Buchanan County and the damage that was going on, and I actually attempted to try to capture the animal. In theory, they're fairly easy to capture, but I I failed to do so. I've not dealt with armadillos, and basically to abate the damage, to, to remove the damage source, because it was quite severe. Um, but I was unable to capture the animal, and a couple days went by, and she didn't, she didn't see it anymore. It, it basically disappeared. We don't know what happened to that animal. But then, a few weeks later, we got some other reports of other animals about 12 miles as the crow flies or so in Russell County, Virginia. And that was an animal that was actually killed by a gentleman's dogs. They, they had cornered and found this animal and, and killed it, and it was an adult male. Uh, that that specimen actually is has been cleaned and is now in the Virginia Natural History Museum. And we had another report uh, about three miles from there of possibly two animals. And those uh, one of the animals was actually actually captured in a live trap, uh, and it it died actually in the trap. And then there was a second uh, another yet another animal that was they had uh, trail camera pictures of to verify. So we, we've had a number of these sporadic reports that we could verify uh, in the field, either with a carcass or with credible trail cameras or photos.
0: And I understand there was a sighting earlier this year as well.
1: Th- there have been. There's, there's been a number of, of either roadkill or verified photos or so on since then. Uh, but last September, we had an animal on a, on a trail camera uh, in Wise County. And then this spring, about two miles as the crow flies from that trail camera picture, we had an animal turn up dead uh, roadkill. And we presume that that's probably the same animal. We've not had any other reports. Uh, and given the, the distance, we figure that's probably the same animal. It's just interesting. All the animals that we've been, either, we've been able to verify, which is to say a, a carcass in hand, have all been males. So n- nothing uh, at this point to suggest that we have a breeding you know, resident population. If we had females that were reproducing, then I'd say, okay, we, we are Virginia is now occupied by armadillos. But at this point, it's kind of more of like an occurrence uh, where we have these random males that are showing up, but we don't have any evidence yet that we have a breeding population.
0: That was biologist Seth Thompson. He mentioned armadillo specimens he sent to the Virginia Museum of Natural History in Martinsville. Nancy Moncrief is a scientist there. I met her at the museum to talk more about these armadillos.
3: We have the first documented specimens, physical evidence of armadillos in Virginia. Um, here on the table in front of us, we have the complete skeletons of these animals and the the outer, the hard outer shell of the animals. We saved the uh, heart, liver, kidney organs of these animals, and they're in a freezer at minus 80 degrees Celsius, uh, cryopreserved for future genetic studies or a whole range of any other studies where where you would need uh, living tissue, essentially living tissue, to be able to uh, study ecology by looking at maybe stable, stable isotopes or Um, some other aspect of the animal's biology. And that's what museums do. We have stuff, we properly store it, we archive it, we make sure the information that's associated with the specimen is as correct as we can make it. And then future generations will be able to come back, look at the physical evidence, sometimes using technology we don't even have right now Um, and get answers out of these specimens.
0: Given that elements associated with climate change, whether it's high rainfall and flooding, milder winters, hotter summers, and confirmed sightings, is it a fair assumption to think that Armadillo populations are moving north into Appalachia? Uh,
3: Into Appalachia and also into Virginia, They were first reported in the mid-1800s down in South Texas in the lower Rio Grande Valley. Their population started building up and expanding northward so that by the mid-1930s, they had already made it to east of the Mississippi River. Simultaneously, in the the mid-1920s and 1930s, we had two incidents where armadillos were released in eastern Florida. One was uh, an intentional release from a personal zoo, and another one was an accidental release from a circus truck. In the mid-1940s, in southern Alabama, somebody intentionally released nine banded armadillos. By 2013, armadillos had expanded all the way up into Illinois, Indiana, western Kentucky, western Tennessee, all the way into North Georgia and up into South Carolina. By 2019 and 2020, um, there's shading in lots of counties in North Carolina and Eastern Kentucky and Eastern Tennessee. We think they're coming from Eastern Tennessee up the upper clinch and the Holston looking for food and expanding northward. So far, we don't have evidence of reproduction in Virginia, so they aren't uh, we don't consider them to be established or well established yet, but um, it's highly likely that uh, a pregnant female will be moving north at some point and then we'll have established populations in Virginia.
0: So we've had uh, sightings in the last this year and last, in southwestern Virginia and eastern Kentucky, not to mention, you know, Tennessee, North Carolina, Alabama, and points on, no sightings in West Virginia yet. When do you think that might happen?
3: No idea. Nothing is impossible, I suppose. It's possible that animals may, become, may come in from Virginia up into West Virginia at some point.
0: That was Nancy Moncrief of the Virginia Museum of Natural History. Before that, we heard from Seth Thompson with the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources. They spoke with me about recent armadillo sightings in southwestern Virginia and how the animals might have gotten here. We've posted photos of the armadillos spotted in Virginia on our website, wvpublic.org. More than a month after record flooding in eastern Kentucky, Thousands of people are still without permanent, safe housing. Katie Myers with the Ohio Valley Resource reports that the clock is ticking as weather gets colder and houses still need repaired.
4: Laverne Fields and her family are camping by the side of the road in Millstone, Kentucky. It's been a month and a half since her trailer washed into the creek.
2: Famous, a little bit slow on us.
4: From far away, her trailer looks like a box of toys dropped by a child, its contents all spilled out of it. Now it's dusty, and there's little shade, and there's no relief
2: in her camper. And it gets really hot in there. Me and the baby has breathing problems.
4: She's too busy to appeal with FEMA right now. Fields lives with nine people, her brother, her cousins, some kids she's taking care of. There's no electricity or running water in the camper. We bathe morning and night with wet wipes. Governor Andy Bashir says the state is sheltering 300 people in travel trailers and other accommodations. But not everyone qualifies. Kayla Morton says the state denied her request for a trailer, but she was eventually able to find one from a relative. We didn't have anywhere to stay, and there was nowhere to rent because there's so many homes that are lost, and it,
5: this was really our only option.
4: She's living with her husband and toddler at Carr Creek Campground and expects to be here through the winter if not longer.
6: But we're planning for a long-term, up to six, seven months, maybe more.
4: Campground manager Devon Cottle is doing his best to provide for the temporary community that's sprung up. But the work is daunting.
6: We usually shut our campground down in the wintertime due to the weather, and now we're going to have to try to get some of this stuff winterized to keep it open, because as far as I know, this is going to be a long-term situation.
4: At least 30 families are living at the campground in a combination of FEMA, state, and personal trailers. Cottle says FEMA should be coming around to winterize trailers, but he doesn't know when.
6: It's got me stressed to the max.
4: Many may not be able to return to their homes at all. Kentucky State Representative Angie Hatton is from Whitesburg, one of the cities hit hard by the flood. She says long-term resettlement will be a challenge.
7: Eastern Kentucky, like a lot of other places, had a shortage of affordable housing anyway. Then this flood made that so much worse.
4: The state legislature passed a $213 million relief bill, but it didn't include money for long-term housing fixes. The next legislative session is in January. Hatton says lawmakers will be able to provide more help then. Scott McReynolds, the director of the Housing Development Alliance in Hazard, Kentucky, says housing solutions can't wait till winter.
8: We need to be thinking today about where we're going to be building houses in the spring. We can't expect people to live in trailers for campers uh, long term. We've got to start now planning
9: where, where we can build houses.
4: Back in Millstone, Laverne Field says a church group told her they'd buy her a new trailer. Now, I don't know how accurate it is, but they told me that probably by September they may have me in it or October. But that's the big question, when and if. When the church group comes back, if FEMA answers the appeal, if they can get central air into the house before winter. And all the while, families like Laverne Fields are in limbo, looking at what's left of their house, answering every phone call they get, and in between, staring at the fire in front of the RV. We've just we've been, just been struggling along, trying to survive, waiting to see what's going to happen. For the Ohio Valley Resource, I'm Katie Myers.
0: In the aftermath of these devastating floods, Ohio Valley Resource reporter Alexa Beyer recently dug into how Kentucky and West Virginia have different ways of planning for hazards. Data reporter Justin Hicks sat down with Beyer to learn more about her reporting. So, Alexa,
10: you just finished up a story about what Kentucky and West Virginia are doing to protect people from the impacts of flooding. Now, a lot of that comes through planning, but your reporting found the states weren't really following those plans. So what's the backdrop that got you thinking about this?
5: I think the most immediate thing was the devastating flooding that just hit eastern Kentucky where 39 people died. And there have been a lot of bad floods all over West Virginia this summer too, where there's just so much damage and it's endangering people's lives. And we know that climate change is going to make stuff like this happen more often. And in fact, it is happening a lot more often in the Ohio Valley. And so I was curious what West Virginia and Kentucky are doing to protect their residents from future floods.
10: Yeah. So what are some of the measures the government can take to prepare for these kind of floods? I mean, is it like engineering controls on waterways or disaster preparedness or or just both? Uh, Both.
5: So there are different things that work for different communities. Some examples would be levees, elevating roads and bridges, and improving emergency warning systems.
10: Have Kentucky and West Virginia done anything to include some of those measures you just mentioned? So
5: both states have made plans to do something, um, and each state has a different approach to planning. In West Virginia, it's a statewide approach where, um, you know, in 2004, after four years of planning, uh, they, they came out with this huge plan, and we're talking almost 400 pages. But no state agency has actually used any of its recommendations, so mitigation hasn't been done Meanwhile, in Kentucky, the state delegates planning to communities who in turn clump into these districts and the districts make plans with officials from the cities and counties.
10: OK, got it. So there's like a state approach I and mean, there's a local approach. Let's focus on West Virginia for just one second. So in your reporting, you said they they don't have an official plan in place, right? But in 2016, there was flooding where more than 20 people died that prompted the state to make some changes. Yeah,
5: so the legislature the following year made a flood committee and a state office devoted to coming up with new plan that was built on that 2004 one, but it's five years after that and there's still no timetable for when they'll be done with that. Uh, a senator who serves as a co-chair of that flooding committee, Chandler Swope, said that adopting a concrete plan is a fuzzy assignment that could take years.
10: So that's in West Virginia, but uh, shifting to Kentucky – you say it ops for local plans, right? But in your reporting, you found many local officials didn't even know those local plans existed. I mean, tell me more about that.
5: So I called dozens of officials across Eastern Kentucky 911 managers, floodplain coordinators, emergency managers, and almost none of them knew what the plans were or that the district had the plans. And in fact, one mayor I spoke with, Susan Polis of Fleming Neon, had no idea that one of the action items in the plan was to move City Hall out of the floodplain. Uh, Yet the director of the development district, Michelle Allen, said that they regularly communicate with city officials. Allen did say that they just hired someone to work with cities to carry out those plans, but it's still a pretty new idea.
10: Okay. Well, Bottom line, what does this all mean for people right now, the people in these disaster areas or maybe in disaster-prone areas?
5: Both Kentucky and West Virginia officials expressed to me that right now their priority is managing these natural disasters that just occurred, not mitigation. And I think the hope for people who care about being protected from these potential floods is that the government will be proactive instead of reactive.
0: That was Alexa Beyer speaking with Justin Hicks about flood planning in Kentucky and West Virginia. You can read Byer's Story at OhioValleyResource.org. Later in the show, we revisit a story about America's largest indigenous fruit.
7: It was delicious. It was just the most amazing flavor. It was like a sort of like a banana mango combo
0: with a hint of a little strawberry. That's coming up. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University
9: in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just
0: a single job. More at concord.edu. College football season has been underway for about a month now. Saturday games are bigger than just sporting contests. There are opportunities to unite students, faculty, alumni, and fans. Schools across the country use these occasions to celebrate past glories and mark milestones. At West Virginia University, the Mountaineer Marching Band is recognizing 50 years since women first entered their ranks. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Shepard Snyder spoke to some of these first women to take the field with the pride of West Virginia.
9: The Mountaineer Marching Band started as a males-only military band in 1901. Back then, every man attending WD was required to take at least one course in military science, and joining the band was a way to fulfill that requirement while continuing their interest in music. Fast forward to the early 1970s, and female students are participating in their high school marching bands across the country. But aside from a period during World War II, many collegiate marching bands still excluded women. It was a point of contention for students like Joyce Dully. She says pushing for opportunities for women to join collegiate marching bands was important to her as a music education major.
3: That limited the scope of applying for jobs. You know, you couldn't apply to high school etc. if you had no marching band experience.
9: Fellow student and eventual bandmate Angie Bowman says Dully started a petition to allow women to join.
3: They said that Penn State just allowed females
11: in the band, marching band, and so we should be able to be in. So I signed the petition and then soon after I received a letter about band camp.
9: Dully says she doesn't remember exactly if she was the one who created the petition or not, but she also doesn't doubt it. The addition of Women in the Band coincided with the creation of Title IX, the famous law that banned gender discrimination at federally funded universities. But one of the first women in the band, Jill Cochran, says it also came from a push from the band's then new director, Don Wilcox.
11: He's the one who said, let's do it. The dean of women was not happy about this whole idea, especially the idea that we would go off to band camp at Camp Dawson in Preston County with all of those...
9: Man. Wilcox entered the position in 1971 and is credited with making much of the band's style and presentation the way it is today. He's now celebrated as the director of bands Emeritus by the WVU School of Music. After sign-ups took place and acceptance letters were sent out, Cochran, Dully, Bowman, and nine other women made the trip to Camp Dawson for band camp. This inaugural class became known as the Dirty Dozen, a moniker the group took in stride. Dully remembers excitement, not fear at the opportunity.
3: I wasn't scared. I, I don't know if any of us were afraid. We were, like, empowered. Like, yeah, this is no big deal, we can do this, we've done it in high school."
9: Dully says a lot of the men initially thought the new members wouldn't be able to keep up, but that assumption changed quickly.
3: There was an awareness of, oh, they're not going to screw us up, so we're okay. You know, they're going to add to it, they're not falling down and fainting and or whatever they expected.
9: A page on the band's website detailing its history says the 1971 season fielded an all-male band of only 88 members, but by the end of the decade, the band ballooned to around two 280. Eileen Smith-Dalabrida, who joined the band during the 72 season but after that first band camp, says she thinks the addition to add women was also a matter of practicality.
7: Having women in the band vastly expanded the pool of of musicians. And by 1975, the fall of 1975, there were more people who wanted to be in the band than there were positions for them.
9: For those original alumni, joining the marching band ended up giving them lifelong memories. Dalla Brita says she remembers her first game and how proud she felt to be on the field.
7: I remember the first game that we, we were all encouraged to let that literally let down our hair so that people in the stands could see that there were some women, even though there weren't very many of us, that there were women out on the field.
9: Today, the WVU marching band consistently hovers around the 300-member mark, and half of its members are women. Heather Miller, a fifth-year member of today's band, says her interest in joining a big marching band was something passed down from her mother.
5: It was one of the major reasons I wanted to go to a university when I was looking at education after high school. When she marched in the early 90s, she was given that opportunity which inspired me.
10: In
9: Angie Bowman's case, she found her husband of nearly 50 years. She and her then-boyfriend Dale started dating after the 72 band camp and got married in the winter of 1974.
11: Mr. Wilcox, always likes to remind my husband and I that we started something. We may have been the first marriage out of the band, but there have been many, many matches since that.
9: Cochran says she's in the middle of an internet-wide search for the Dirty Dozen so they can meet and have dinner after this year's homecoming game.
11: I've I've turned into Sherlock Holmes, or or sort of a modern-day Sherlock Holmes, trying to chase people down through the internet. And when I get them on the phone, it's as if, oh gosh, we haven't talked for a month or two, so let's chat again. (laughs)
9: Scott Tobias, director of bands at WVU, says that this year, the band is recognizing the anniversary during their homecoming halftime show, inviting those original alumni to be honored on the field. Sometimes you look at it as a historical event and don't
3: think about what the ramifications of that event actually were or are, we're also looking at what that means today.
9: Cochran says every time she visits Morgantown for homecoming, she's pointed out to the current members as one of the first women in the band. She appreciates this year's celebration, but she just hopes the recognition inspires young women to continue to pave the way forward.
11: They don't believe that there could ever have been a time when women weren't in the band. I don't need to be on the jumbotron and, and have somebody call out my name, but I would like people to know, that we did something. We, we tried to make the world a little bit better for you.
9: For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Shepard Snyder in Martinsburg.
0: Shepard Snyder, a 2020 graduate of WVU, was a member of the marching band for four years. He says he played God's instrument, which is apparently the trumpet. Appalachia is full of odd, offbeat, and cool places to rest for the night. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Randy Yowie and his wife, Vicky like to explore these kinds of places. they had done some traveling this summer, and Randy returned with this story.
12: Between shoveling coal into the locomotive firebox or checking the water level to get up steam, Cass Railroad Fireman Justin Gay says he enjoys his job uh, most of the time.
13: You get to meet people from all around the world. you got people from different countries, different states, neighboring states. Then you got times where it's difficult where the cold don't burn too hot or
12: it ain't... That's a cue to get back to work. The all-wheel drive Shea locomotive was designed for the roughest mountain duty under the worst possible conditions. The antique locomotives that tourists ride at the Cass Scenic Railroad State Park are among the few remaining anywhere. Gay says in its heyday a century ago, this railroad didn't stop and this lumber town was busy.
13: This line here was the main line that went up the mountain. The track beside of us was the C&O, which went up to Durban, and then Durban connected into western Maryland. They did a whole lot. They clear-cutted that whole mountain.
12: That's my rocking chair on the front porch. No lodge, cabins, or tent campground at a state park highlighted by a grand old train. My wife Vicky and I crossed one off our bucket list by staying in one of the 20 or so refurbished Cass Company houses. Built in the early 1900s for the workers at the lumber mill and the machine shop, uh,
2: the company houses are great. They're they're the original structures. Of course, they've been fitted with modern amenities: shower, heat, air conditioning. But it's it's just a it's a nice uh, experience to take a look back at the history of Cass, but yet be comfortable. You can do anything offered there in the community, the trail, biking, take a ride on the railroad, or you can just sit on the porch and relax and wave at your neighbors.
12: My wife and I like hotels just fine, but we also enjoy staying in creative places that offer a new experience.
2: We've stayed in um, Treehouse in the Virgin Islands, um, a Wigwam off Route 66, a Castaway Caboose in West Virginia, really wonderful experience. That's just to name a few.
12: West Virginia Tourism Secretary Chelsea Ruby says the state is getting into the alternative camping and glamping game. Ruby says tenter campsites sprouting up in state parks put visitors in the heart of nature. A short hike is required to access these campsites. Many are surrounded by spectacular views. Tenter sites come equipped with a preset canvas tent on its own wooden deck platform, a queen-sized memory foam mattress, side tables, a propane tent heater, picnic table, fire ring, solar shower, and more. Ruby says advertising West Virginia's alternative lodgings and national tourism publications is drawing travelers to the Mountain State.
14: Last month, it was one of our top-performing ads. We had an ad um, that featured a treehouse cabin and one that featured the fire tower. Um, and both of those were among the top in, in most clicked-on ads just because people are interested in these new types of places you can stay.
12: Our most recent glamping stay was at a farm and forest setting near Alderson, aptly named wvglampingdomes.com. Vicki found it by Googling West Virginia glamping.
2: Yeah, it was nice. Uh, It was beside a stream. Um, You could hear all the sounds of nature, and, uh, but yet, you know, you were close by to the amenities most people want. Um, Shower facility, kitchen, running water, even a hot tub. Uh, Very interesting. Uh, It was open partially uh, to the outside so you could see the night sky, the trees, the woods.
13: There's a river running right through the middle of it. It sits in two counties, and there's a walking bridge that's reminiscent of one of the bridges you might find in England or Paris.
12: Tim and Angela Luce left their city jobs behind to establish WestVirginiaLampingDomes.com in Greenbrier County. Tim says it was the pandemic that actually helped him gain his tourism niche.
13: Rural destinations like ours were up about 300 percent, and so that showed me there was a demand from the consumer base for something like this. And so we opened and we booked up an entire year's worth of reservations in a week wow. for our first dome. And wow. so we rolled all of that those reservations as cash flow into building the, the next ones. We wanted to focus on a connection with nature. So the giant window facing the stream, when you're stream front, we also have another dome we're building right now that's gonna be a mountain view with a huge panoramic view. And then a thing that our guests really love is the skylight.
12: From a railroad company house to a Caribbean tree house, from a not-so- rustic tent to a hot-tub enhanced clamping dome. Finding lodging on part or all of any trip seems only limited these days by imagination and your sense of adventure.
2: Thorny Mountain Fire Tower. That's, I'm waiting on that. We are on the waiting list and uh, hope to do that soon.
12: And I plan to join her. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Randy Yohe.
0: As much as anything, words color what the world sees in Appalachia. Take Hillbilly Elegy, the book that springboarded author J.D. Vance, into a campaign for U.S. Senate. But his view of Appalachia isn't the only one. Ohio poet Sarah Moore Wagner has released Hillbilly Madonna. It's a book of poetry that centers women's experiences in Appalachia. Bill Lynch recently spoke with Wagner.
15: First off, the, the title of the book, you know, Hillbilly Madonna. So why that particular title?
14: Well, it was the title of a poem first, which was one of the first poems that I wrote for this manuscript. And um, it was basically the poem is about, you know, being a little girl and looking up at the sky and seeing kind of the fireflies. It was about Then, you know, in the poem, the narrative of the poem, the fathers come and take the girls out of the field where they're kind of surrounded by nature and they come to this realization that someday they're going to be mothers. The overwhelming pressure of that, perhaps. And so I thought that that kind of encapsulated the collection as a whole, because, I mean, when we think about women in particular, there's that dichotomy of being either... You know, the Holy Madonna or the the degenerate, broken Mary Magdalene type figure. And this book is about women. It's about opioids. It's about generational trauma. And what I really wanted to do is to illustrate that people can be broken and still be holy and pure. and you know that there it's not that sort of strong um, opposite thing that's often put on women in particular.
15: Tell me a little about uh, where you came from and even how you got to this book.
14: I was actually born in Columbus, but my parents are from um, Parkersburg, West Virginia and Jackson, Ohio area. And they both relocated in their teens, which is when they got pregnant with me. And so I, my mother, she when she was 14, um, her, mu- she was involved in a big crime that like marked Parkersburg of her mother and grandmother being murdered. Um, and she was the one to kind of run from that and escape. And then a couple years later I was born to me. I've always lived with this overhanging shadow of trauma and of women kind of surviving and not surviving. When I wanted to write a book about my childhood, my parents also divorced when I was really young, like, um, two. And so I wanted to write about my mother and father's different landscapes that I come from and the 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 idea of coming from the hills and that, that my father often went back to. So I would spend summers with my father and I'd be, he loved Logan, Ohio and Tar, Tar Hollow State Park is where we spent a lot of our time. And so I felt kind of pulled between these two different worlds. The book came from me wanting to explore my childhood, but then also thinking about the ways in which people, everyone who is from Ohio or West Virginia or anywhere really knows people who've fallen into opioid addiction and have lost children and their lives. So I wanted to explore that with women in particular, because that's something that's close to me too.
15: Your poems in this book cover a lot of ground, childhood, family, addiction, trauma, place. Where do you start with with this kind of collection? I mean, how does this, something like this kind of come together? Where does it begin?
14: Place was so important to me in this because I felt like landscape is so tied to our identity. And there are a lot of writers that explore that, how connected to your body, the, the place that you are familiar with are. And so I would go to the places of my childhood. So I spent a lot of time in Jackson and in Tar Hollow and in uh, the places that I spent a lot of time in my childhood trying to explain and make the the landscape part come to life in this book. Because I think you can't really understand a person without understanding the places that they come from or spring from.
15: The opioid epidemic would now also be called the uh, the overdose epidemic now.
14: Mm-hmm.
15: Um, was that an early piece to, to this, or was it something that kind of evolved as you were writing about your childhood?
14: I think it evolved because for me, there came a moment where I started thinking about, in particular, the girls that I grew up with, family members and really close friends, and how having just that person. And for me, it was my mom that was able to kind of pull me out, made all the difference for me because we started the exact same, you know, these like soul friends and sisters. And we also, I graduated from high school in 2000, kind of like the, the time that opioids were everywhere. And I did a lot of things, you know, I, I was able to escape all of that because I had my mother who time and again would set me back on a path and say, this is where you're going. Just seeing how often addiction is made to be some kind of moral failing, especially with women was really upsetting to me. Um, And I wanted to provide a, a portrait of this is who I am. This is how I grew up. And this is what I've seen happen. And none of these women are evil, degenerate women who who hate their children and lives, that this is something that is directly connected to poverty, to generational trauma, to just the system of injecting opioids into these communities, which is something that people are talking about a lot more now, thankfully. But it became important to me to give a face and show that face being someone who can be redeemed and not someone who's just a portrait of that people can use for political gain or to dismiss a community in general.
15: It's difficult to not mention uh, Ohio and Appalachia without J.D. Vance coming into the picture at some point. How do you feel like this book as the conversation from Hillbilly Elegy?
14: My title is so similar. So I thought I, I didn't think about Hillbilly Elegy when um, I made the title Hillbilly Madonna, which is, might be funny to, to hear. But um. I mean, J.D. Vance and I have very similar stories. We have very, you know, we both grew up as the children of relocated Appalachians, spent time of our summers back in our, our um, family's hometown. I even have a grandma named that I call Mimo, who threatens to shoot people, you know, <laughs> we have similar upbringings, but I think the difference for me is, you know, his book is called Hillbilly Elegy. That's dead, you know, and he clearly wrote this book as we can see now, for political purposes, as a stepping stone in his own political career. And he's not just telling his story, he's explaining for all of the rest of the country exactly what these people are without really having lived there much, you know, and without I think pretty much everyone who comes from the places that he's describing is says that's not who I am. So what my book, I did not want to speak for a community. I wanted to speak my story and my understanding of the women that I know and myself and just tell the story to say, okay, here's a little, this is what you think women are like in this community. Here's an example of how that might be different, you know, that it's not beyond redemption, Nobody's dead here. This is something that that can be overcome. But also, I don't I don't have a desire to uh, use that to get power, you know. <laughs> and I think that's where he's coming from: is I'm going to use all this information so that I can put myself in a position of power as an authority, and expert. And I don't I don't think that hillbillies or Appalachia at all is just a hum- homogenized thing that you can easily explain in one book. So yeah, I have friends who say, "Oh, he is he who sh- must not be named." Yeah, he ha- he's, he's dominated what people think of Ohio and northern Kentucky, Appalachia in general.
15: The book is Hillbilly Madonna by Sarah Moore Wagner. Sarah, thank you very much.
14: Thank you.
0: Hillbilly Madonna is published by Driftwood Press. Wagner is now at work on a book of poems about her mom and Annie Oakley. It's pawpaw season here in central Appalachia. The pawpaw is an indigenous American fruit. It tastes like a cross between a mango and a banana. It's got a tropical flavor, which is pretty unusual for Appalachia's landlocked states. Often you find them in the wild. Pawpaw trees haven't really caught on with commercial farmers because the delicate fruit bruises easily, making them hard to transport. They also have a short shelf life. Just a couple of days once picked, unless you freeze them. But pawpaws sometimes turn up at roadside stands or at farmer's markets. In 2020, Inside Appalachia Folkways reporter Brian Costco reported this story about the pawpaw. It's early August, a fresh summer afternoon in Jackson County, Ohio. Behind
8: me is the Leo Petroglyph, a huge rock carved with images of animals and humans. It's the work of indigenous Americans who visited this site over 1,000 years ago. I'm here with Chris Schmiel, the founder of the Ohio Pawpaw Festival. What we're searching for isn't made of stone, but just like the petroglyph, it's survived here for thousands of years.
1: These pawpaws are on the edge of the forest. There's a clump of them about 15 or so feet away and there's, you know, they grow in a patch.
8: Chris is an expert in all things pawpaw and over the years he's noticed something about
1: where pawpaws grow. It just seems like every one of these ancient sites I hear about or talk about with someone, they mention there's pawpaws everywhere at places like Shawnee Lookout, the Serpent Mound. There's pawpaws there, this place.
8: The mounds are earthworks that functioned as graves and ceremonial sites for the Hopewell, Adena, and later the Fort Ancient People, a Native American cultural group that flourished in the Ohio River Valley from about 1,000 to 1,600 A.D. Some scholars believe that the fort ancient people who made the Leo petroglyph were ancestors of the Shawnee, who by the 17th century would call this
1: part of Ohio home. These are ancient native plants. They're well adapted to our soils and the region. Say so these things have been here for a long time.
8: We know that the pawpaw was an important resource for the Shawnee. How? Because even after being forcibly removed from this region by the US government in the early 19th century, It left an imprint on Shawnee culture. Joel Barnes is one of the major guardians of Shawnee culture and language in the present day.
6: I'm the uh, language director and archives director for the Shawnee tribe. I'm also a Shawnee tribal
8: member. He explains that the Shawnee marked time by the phases of the moon.
6: That means Pawpaw month. It's the month of September. That literally means Pawpaw moon.
8: The Pawpaw was important enough to the Shawnee people's way of life that they named a moon after it.
6: That moon would indicate that was the time the pawpaws were right. It was time to go pick them and probably also indicate indicator: hey, we're getting close to winter.
8: Joel's ancestors were forcibly moved from their Ohio Valley home in Appalachia by the Indian Removal Act of 1830. The Shawnee were sent first to Kansas, and then after the Civil War, they were pushed into Oklahoma. For the Shawnee, the pawpaw is a direct tie to Appalachia and their uprooted past. It's hard to find out in Oklahoma because the state is located at the edge of the tree's climate zone.
6: I do know in present day we have some tribal members that have planted them out in their yards just to get them to grow. They're not quite that abundant in this part of Oklahoma. Once you start moving east and get over into Missouri and around Joplin area, you start seeing them more and more of them Pawpaw trees.
8: Joel does remember eating the fruit when he was growing up. It was rare, but it existed.
6: We never did get really fancy with it. We would just cut it open and peel it and just eat it. It was pretty good, and I've ate some off and on throughout my life, but it's been a while since I've had any.
8: Cut off from their ancestral homeland and the plants that grow there, Joel says the Shawnee have seen some of the Pawpaw's cultural relevance fade with time
6: some of these old folks they all had them they've all ate them but there's nothing really far as any type of ceremonial dance or any type of ceremony in regards to the pawpaws just if there ever was nobody
8: knows but somehow through all of that upheaval and across all those miles the shawnee's connection to the pawpaw tree has endured it is a food largely absent from their physical surroundings but traces of it still persist in memory and in the Shawnee language itself.
6: That means, I'm hungry for papa.
8: Dr. Devin Mahasua has devoted her life to recovering lost knowledge of indigenous foods. She is a professor at the University of Kansas, a citizen of the Choctaw Nation, and also a Chickasaw descendant. Distressed by the lack of knowledge of traditional foodways among her people, Devin has made pawpaw and other pre-contact foods a focus of her research.
7: I have just spent decades taking a look at travelers' reports, you know, people who observed back in the 1700s coming through. Nobody ever
8: mentioned pawpaw. You know, they just say this strange fruit. She hasn't found any traditional pawpaw recipes among the Choctaw who called the Mississippi Valley and Southern Appalachia home before they were forced west. She says there's a reason for that. Like a banana, the pawpaw has a short window of ripeness. That meant that it was probably consumed right on the spot. A convenient, fast food.
7: You know, they would just wait until the time to eat it. They don't store well, you know, and maybe they dried it. It could be that they mixed it with other things, which is what
8: I like to do. Despite the difficulty of obtaining written records, Devon has her own special ways of preparing pawpaw that extend its use. She mashes it, mixes it with berries, cooks it down into a flavorful sauce, and then freezes it. Occasionally, she'll add it to cornbread. And even though they had to forage to find pawpaws, her Choctaw grandparents introduced her to the fruit when she was a child.
7: My grandparents lived in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and they had a massive garden. It was a model of my grandmother's ancestors when they lived in Mississippi. And they had all kinds of trees. They didn't have pawpaws, but
8: they knew where they were. Just like Joel, Devin has childhood memories of pawpaw, even though it was scarce. Her first taste was in her grandmother's kitchen.
7: It was delicious. It was just the most amazing flavor. It was like a
8: sort of like a banana mango combo with a hint of. A little strawberry. Devin runs a popular Facebook group on indigenous foodways. There's a lot of interest among American Indians in getting reacquainted with the food their ancestors ate, she says. But many are disappearing or not available where they live, like the pawpaw. It's one of these foods where some people will never get a chance to taste it. There are a few pawpaw trees in Kansas where she currently lives, but the fruit tends to be on private property and inaccessible.
7: I just wish people who had them on their property, you know, recognized and appreciated what they have.
8: Devin is attempting to regain access to the food her ancestors ate. Three years ago, she decided to try and grow pawpaw herself. She's propagating about 50 seeds in containers and eventually hopes to transplant them. It's a long process. I
7: ate the fruit and then I pack the seeds away and I put them in the refrigerator. They overwintered. And then I took them out at the end of February and planted them. And nothing happened for months and months. And it wasn't until the end of July that finally one sprouted.
8: It'll be years until they're ready to transplant, and even longer until they bear fruit. So why is she going through all this trouble? Devin believes that not having access to where your ancestors lived and the foods they ate is a form of historical trauma that needs to be healed.
7: For most tribes, that is where, you know, they believe they were created. It's sacred areas, they're sacred plants, it's where they're dead or buried. It's very important that that people who are interested in learning their culture and being reconnected to their culture understand what it was that sustained their ancestors.
8: As the pawpaw demonstrates, food touches so many aspects of culture, including language, seasonal life, and cosmological stories
7: food teaches us all of these different lessons that expand into every aspect of your life.
8: By bringing these foods and their lessons back into circulation, Devon hopes to address some of the losses her people have sustained. It's easy to take the abundance of pawpaw for granted in the hills of Appalachia. But far away, on the plains of Oklahoma, it's a piece of precious history for those who once called this region home. For Inside Appalachia, I'm
0: Brian Costco in Athens, Ohio. Pawpaw festivals in Ohio and West Virginia usually take place in mid to late September. Pawpaw harvest season doesn't last very long, usually the end of summer to the first or second week in October. So if you look carefully, you still might find a few out there. now
1: tell me true about all the things you do while I'm out working down the line I call on the telephone but you never seem at home it seems the well of truth has just gone dry and the blues are
15: rolling
6: in it seems like such a sin that's why I'm moving
0: around till next time Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Chris Stapleton, Jake Sheps, Mary Hot, and Del McCurry. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at inappalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.